Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. If life were a river, what would you see as you navigated its twists and turns? When in your life has the sky gone dark, the water rough? And when has the water been smooth, the sun shining? And since it's growing closer with every passing second, it's worth musing on what do you see at the end of the river? The American naturalist painter Thomas Cole tackled these questions in a four-part visual odyssey called The Voyage of Life. These works are unusual, and not just because there are four, childhood, youth, manhood, and old age. They're also large paintings with vivid, high-contrast colors and tiny details nestled among the painted leaves. When Hawaiian musician Daniel Ho combed through the National Gallery's collection for us, the voyage of life jumped out at him. As someone whose childhood revolved around being in the water, certainly, and as someone who's still grappling with what it means to grow up. Daniel was so moved by the coal paintings that he composed an original suite for us, music that takes us on a journey inspired by Cole's voyage, and by Daniel's, too. These four paintings are so special to me because I feel like I've kind of experienced these things, and I... I relate to them on a personal level and visually as well. And I wanted to see how I could create art, you know, instead of using colors, you know, I, I have 12 notes to work with and, and making it personal by tying it to themes. Uh, for example, in childhood, the motif for the entire piece is E, G, A, and C. And I base that on the degrees of a C scale. E is the third degree, C, D, E. So three, five, six, eight are the notes E, G, A, and C. And March 5th, 1968 is my birthday. And I started in the highest registers of the ukulele because a child is tiny and small and it's cute. And I wasn't cute. I was a brat, <laughs> but um, it's a tiny sound. I use very simple harmony, uh, not too much or no dissonance at all. 
So it's very pure and happy. And as the music progresses, you know, make it a little warmer by changing the modes to Mixolydian for the youthful part. And in manhood, it turns to a minor key and it has a rhythm going and it's, you're supposedly in your prime. So I did it in a prime meter, which is a meter of seven, four, which is in, uh, we call an odd meter. And there's turmoil in it and there's rhythm and there's energy and there's angst and there's anger. And then, you know, in the old age part, I returned to the original theme, which is birth and death, the two for sure things in life. <laughs> and uh, I returned to the original theme, but did it in a more thoughtful way with counterpoint and a little more wisdom about music, not so simple harmonies and ending with the slowing of movement and harmonics, which are like bell-like tones on the ukulele. And that is when our body slows and slows and slows until it stops moving. For more on Thomas Cole, we're joined by Franklin Kelly. He's an expert on the Hudson River School of Painters and the Christiane Ellis Vallone Curator of American Paintings at the National Gallery of Art. So tell me about how these paintings are exhibited at the gallery. They are exhibited in an octagonally shaped room, which has four walls and four doorways. That, that room is a gallery that, ent- that you enter right off of one of the garden courts of our main floor of our West Building, the, the, the older of the two large buildings that, that comprise the National Gallery. And when you come into that space, you basically are surrounded by the paintings because each wall, each of the four walls, has one painting. And so if you can get oriented, and there are these text panels that actually reproduce Thomas Cole's own descriptions. They're not some curator like me telling you what to think. They're Thomas Cole, Thomas Cole the artist, telling you what to think, which is, you know, that's better. Um, And you get oriented with childhood, the first one, and then you can follow them around that sort of circle, literally, that follow the course of of the, the voyage of life. Now, people think, gosh, that must have been constructed exactly for those paintings and exactly how those paintings were meant to be seen. Uh, We don't know, in fact, precisely how the paintings were meant to be seen, because if you imagine them, and let's, let's say whether this is Samuel Ward, the man who commissioned the first set, or the man in Cincinnati who bought the second set, if you imagine those four large paintings framed, you know, we're looking at, you know, sort of nine foot wide objects, four of them in a line is going to take a very long wall. And imagine that in a domestic setting. So we don't know for a fact whether Cole meant for them to be in a line. More likely, he may have meant for them to be hung as two pairs, one over the other, in the case of of childhood and youth, and then manhood and old age. That's possible. They may have been meant to hang as two pairs on two separate walls. Anyway, this is all speculation. We don't know for a fact. We actually do know how he meant the course of empire to hang because he made, fortunately for us, a nice little design, which survives. Um, but we don't know that. Um, and the the room, the gallery, 
the octagonal gallery where they currently hang is where they've always hung, but people are often amused to know that that octagonal gallery was there from the beginning. When the gallery opened in 1941, that octagonal room was there. We didn't we didn't make it specifically for the Voyage of Life. We have we have we've painted it and we've done some, you know, some architectural details here and there, but no, that's it's that's actually the that was one of those fortuitous things. It was the perfect space almost when I first saw the Voyage of Life. I can remember exactly when it was. It was my senior year in high school in 1971. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. We came on a field trip to Washington to to visit the art museums and the other museums. And of course, you know, you know, senior in high school, a boy, you know, probably imagined I was trying to do other things, escape and not. But I remember we came to the National Gallery and one of the places we walked into, the paintings had literally just been acquired. I think there must have been a sign or something that said, you know, recent acquisition. And I walked into that room and I went, wow, <laughs> you know, and, and I actually bought postcards of the four paintings. And I had those postcards with me for years and years uh, through graduate school and everything like that. And then until one day I was, uh, one, one, one holiday season, I was making some homemade Christmas cards and I cut them up and glued them onto cards. But um, anyway, you know, I, I remember, but I remember walking into that octagonal room and maybe I didn't, didn't think to myself, oh, this is perfect. I just, I just thought, wow, what a, you know, what an experience. What, what, what a group of paintings. What a way to experience them. So maybe we can go through them bit by bit and sort of talk a little bit about parallels between your own life and each stage of life Thomas Cole portrayed. Because we start out with childhood. Tell me a little bit about your own memories of childhood and how they resonate with his portrait of them. Wow. <laughs> I grew up in Hawaii and I spent a lot of my time on the water. I surfed. I well, I started on boogie boards and handboards and pipo boards and then surfboards and then my dad bought us a boat and it was called a full boat, F-O-L-B-O-T. And it was a little sidebar in a National Geographic magazine. We had a, you know, collected National Geographic magazines. And it was a boat that you built, you put together. It was a wooden frame and vinyl stretched over it. So it was very much like a kayak. So we spent a couple of months, you know, varnishing the wood and putting this frame together and, and uh, built this boat. It was a 16-foot kayak. And my brother and father and I would go in Wahewa Reservoir and Kahala Streams and Alawai Canal and go crabbing and fishing and paddling in Alamoana Yacht Harbor and and just had a wonderful time on the ocean. And I know how to steer a boat. I've paddled the Hawaiian outrigger canoes before. So I also relate on a personal level being on a stream and and listening to the water lapping up against the side of the boat. I I really love that sound. Or the bottom of a surfboard. And the ocean and rivers and streams are a big part of my life. I lived in Kaimaki and St. Louis Stream was between me and my high school, St. Louis High School. And all summer long, my brother and friends and I would spend the days in the stream, going all the way down the stream, up Manoa Valley, you know, catching swordtails and guppies and chicklets and tilapia and racing crayfish. We used to catch crayfish and race crayfish. 
so much. Yeah, I mean, it it was it was quite a life. It was a lot of fun. The streams weren't they were dirty, but they weren't quite as polluted as they are now. So it was really a joy, you know. After school, we had to finish our homework, then we go to Waikiki, and we surfed until sunset. I used to sit on my surfboard between sets, and I would stare out at the sunset and dream of being a musician in Los Angeles. And well, I like groups like Journey at the time, you know, or whatever. But、uh, but I always wanted to be like the lead guitarist, and you know, in a rock group or something like that. So there's really nothing else I've ever. Aspired to be so. <laughs> so I wonder that kind of takes us into the next painting in the series,、uh, which is youth. And in that painting, you see the child saying farewell, right, waving off the the youth. And that there's the castle, which you assume is representing the youth's dreams, right? And for you, that dream was being in tight. Pants like Steve Perry and singing Journey songs. Like your your dream was becoming a musician, was it not? It was. It was. Yeah. It. I just love music so much. I mean, for a couple of reasons. You know, if you pick up an instrument like a guitar or you know sit on a piano, everything you're thinking and feeling kind of disappears, and you're just in this space. And it's it's peaceful. It's beautiful. And Thought, wow, it'd be really neat to to have a life and to see the world、um, playing music like these musicians were doing. I can look back on it now as kind of a confusing time because you're gathering knowledge, you're learning, you're learning about things you knew nothing about, and even in childhood, right? But what was confusing in my youth is the mixture of faith and fact. The knowledge that、uh, we were learning and the things that we were being taught. I went to a Catholic elementary school and a Catholic high school, St. Patrick's Elementary and St. Louis High School. And faith and fact, they they can be kind of two different things. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> as we can see now here, you know, in the pandemic, right? Yeah. And I think. It wasn't till、uh, decades later when I realized, like, hey, wait a minute, you know. So it was a confusing time because it, it didn't all add up, and I, I didn't know what to believe. Do I believe what I was told or taught, or do I believe, you know, knowledge? Is it common for artwork of the nineteenth-century American or not to try to tell a story? Is it, yeah. It's 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 common for for art to try to tell a story、um, in other types of of art and other types of painting. And there's something called history painting, which is a grand catch-all term, and it's it's much older than the 19th century. I mean, it was being done by artists、uh, long before that. But the kind of paintings where you think of a story being told quite literally, whether it's a biblical story, Adam and Eve, or the prodigal son, or Whatever, or whether it's an historical an event, an actual you know historical、um, uh, episode, or whether it's a story from literature or mythology, but in those works, you know, it's the figures, it's the human figures who enact the drama and tell the story, and 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 quite frankly, make the narrative somewhat easier to understand visually.、Um, what what Cole was doing, in some ways, quite simply, was trying to fuse. History painting with landscape painting, 
And one of the earliest ways he, he looked into doing this was borrowing from contemporary American literature uh, subjects. For instance, he created several paintings in 1827, right at the beginning of his career, based on James Fenimore Cooper's popular novels, um, The Last of the Mohicans. And he, he, in a sense, illustrated scenes from that book, which allowed him to do, number one, something he was already very good at, portraying American nature, uh, and number two, to add a layer of meaning that was uh, in the case of, of uh, using James Fenimore Cooper's story. Um, people who'd read the book could, could associate with it. They could, could, could understand that. Cooper himself knew Cole's work, and when he saw them, saw those works after his, uh, uh, inspired by his, his literature, he said he's trying to do something that has, has not been accomplished before. I think he meant in American art specifically, but, but certainly he meant that in a very positive way. And that was essentially to fuse historical meaning or uh, meaning from literature or whatever with landscape painting. So did he often make um, multiple paintings as a set? Um, you can't say that he, he often did it, but he did it enough that it's a, a major, major part of what we consider his, his great achievements. Um, Cole was very interested from the beginning of his career in doing something with landscape painting that you don't necessarily normally think a landscape painting would do, uh, and that is convey meanings and messages, uh, moral, morals, and, and uh, elevated lessons in some ways. Um, through more than just depicting the visual facts of nature, whether that's trees, fields, rocks, mountains, clouds, whatever. He really wanted his, his paintings to, to have meaning. And one of the ways he decided he would, he would work towards that goal was the notion of, of series paintings. First, he started with just two paintings, uh, uh, two views of the Garden of Eden, one before the expulsion of Adam and Eve, one after. Um, but by creating more than one picture, he was able to create a kind of narrative that goes across time and space, literally, um, that gives him a chance to build a story. Um, he went on very, you know, very determined to, to make that um, a part of his, his, his artistic um, intention and, and purpose. And in 1836, he, he finished the first of his multi-part of, of more than two uh, series pictures, which was called The Course of Empire, which was a five-part series looking at the rise and fall in landscape paintings, set in landscape, of an imaginary civilization from its sort of primitive origins to its rise to a grand uh, city on the, on the on the side of the the, the uh, of a bay uh, to its destruction by outside invasions and then ultimately its decline into ruin. Um, those were the most ambitious landscape paintings by far that had been created in America up to that time, 1836, uh, and they were quite. Quite uh, understandably, they were a sensation when he exhibited them in New York, and and people, I think, they responded to the to the quality, to the power, but also to this this notion of of meaning, of of important lessons that could be learned by looking at art. And he he created two versions. He 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 did these four paintings twice, did he not? He did. When he he conceived of a of an idea for a grand series of paintings, and these are these are not just. Four paintings, they're large scale, 
And you have to imagine, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of expense in terms of materials and time that go into these. And for an artist to undertake something like that on his own um, is fairly daring. So Cole always hoped that he could find a, a patron to commission his works. And indeed, after The Course of Empire was completed in 1836, he immediately started looking for patrons who would who would do his next, who would help fund his next idea for a multi-part series, The Voyage of Life. And he found such a patron in a New York banker named Samuel Ward, who agreed to commission the paintings. But unfortunately, Samuel Ward passed away before that first set of four paintings um, was complete. Cole went on to complete them. They were paid for. They went into Samuel Ward's estate, and then they had, Cole had no access to them. He couldn't exhibit them. He couldn't show them to people. He couldn't go look at them himself if he wanted to you know, make prints after them, whatever. So he did something else. He painted a second set, a complete re, you know, repainting, um, largely the same, not entirely. There's some differences, um, but he did that on his own. Um, during 1841-42, while he was, interestingly enough, living and working in Rome. And then he brought that set back to America, and that second set is the one became, that became actually the one that was known first, because the first set was still tied up in the estate. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So it's, it's, a sort of, it's sort of curious historical fact. The second set becomes the first known, um, but then eventually the, the first set works its way out and becomes becomes known. And Cole actually sells the second set in 1845 to a, uh, a wealthy Cincinnati patron. And the pictures go off to Cincinnati and they're seen there and they're seen by artists who visit there. And Cincinnati was quite an interesting center for the arts in the, in the, uh, the 19th century. Um, but after a while, the paintings are forgotten and they sort of fade into obscurity. And that second set then disappears from sort of public and, and, uh, and historical knowledge and recognition uh, really until the 1960s when it's, quote, rediscovered. And then not long after its rediscovery, acquired by the National Gallery. Here's the sweet Daniel Ho composed for us, titled The Voyage of Life Played in Full.
You know, you've mentioned the pandemic and sort of the impact it's had on your thinking a couple times. And we're focusing on manhood, which is what Thomas Cole called the third painting, which is full. I mean, it's got you know, the sky's parting to, to let through the, the light and maybe the figure of a angel or divine spirit, something like that. And he's praying. But at the same time, the landscape is dark and stormy and scary. And the water is turbulent. And there are sharp rocks sticking out of it. And I wonder if that has relevance for you. If some of what you've gone through over the past two years echoes in the darker side of this painting? I think it does. I think it does. So March of 2020, I think, was when it started, you know, the lockdown began. Mm -hmm. We had just come off a tour with the State Department uh, in Brunei and Thailand, and they were starting to close up countries. The Philippines was already closed to tourists. And we got home just in time and the lockdown began. And for the first time since I started my professional career in 1990, I actually didn't have any work at all. So I pretty much work seven days a week. Like I'm always recording something or writing something or finishing a project or doing something. And that's been my life for a long time, 30 years. And suddenly, every gig got canceled, every record project got canceled, and it was a little surreal and, I mean, certainly unpredictable because nobody knew what was going on. And we're staying home, and uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to think. <laughs> I spent time in the—I in, in the, I, I dug a 50-foot um, terrace on the hillside thinking that I'd plant something in the backyard, something— I. I never worked in the garden. That was my first time. <laughs> Dug two terraces, but I'm really trying to figure out like what to do going forward. And luckily, you know, I didn't have so much financial pressure. So it, it wasn't too, too bad. You know, it wasn't too worrisome, but it was kind of surreal and a little bit unnerving to think that, wow, you could just go to a grocery store and catch this virus and you're kind of done. So yeah, I, I think I kind of, roll with the punches. So I'm just kind of look around me, see what's going on and decide how I can best survive this situation or, you know, be happy in this current situation. It's interesting that this painting uses the waterway because so often these passages from say youth to childhood and then adulthood, they really are a transition, right? They are a day-to-day, sometimes the change is so gradual that you don't realize they're happening. And then, you know, over time, you'll realize, as if you look at the difference between youth and manhood, those two paintings, the difference is is vast. (laughs) And that's sort of kind of what adulthood, I feel like, is to me. There's all these little changes happening bit by bit, and then suddenly one day you look around and you realize, oh my God, (laughs) this is not what I thought adulthood was, but (laughs) here I am. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. (laughs) Um, You know, growing up, sitting on my surfboard, dreaming of being a musician someday, you know, of course you don't know what to expect, you know, and then in, in your youth and going to school and studying and practicing and learning, 
you still don't know what to expect. You're still gathering knowledge about the world. And, you know, my experiences were limited to an island in the Pacific. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, transitioning to womanhood or manhood or adulthood, wow, you know, there's a lot of responsibilities, things that keep you from living your dream. You know, you're doing what you have to do rather than what you want to do. And finding the balance there is uh, is kind of a tug of war. And it's it's a big sacrifice. If you want to be a musician, a musician has no clear path to a career, right? Like you don't go to school and pass the bar and say, okay, I'm a musician. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work that way, like being a painter. But, you know, you have to have that passion. You have to do it seven days a week and you really got to believe in yourself and work at it. And even when no one's believing in you and then and you kind of get a little something going, but then you throw responsibility on top of that, like a mortgage or, um, you know, my father had a stroke when I was 19 years old and I had to drop out of school, move back to Hawaii and care give for a couple of years and take care of a lot of financial responsibilities as well for the next 20 years and so on. And those things are part of being an adult. And it was it was not an easy time. It was a, a very long time, you know, decades, right? And, and not a lot changes except, you know, going gray and losing hair <laughs> and, and, and things like that. But, you know, you don't really notice the the year-to-year or day-to-day changes like we did in our youth and and childhood. And, and um, I think Thomas Cole's painting is a little bit darker than I imagined my, looking back on, on my experience uh, during this period. But certainly the rapids, yeah, I, I went there. I did that. <laughs> when music becomes not just something you love, but something that is work, something that has to happen in order to pay the bills. How do you maintain your joy in it? Wow, that's a good question. When I was in high school, I had a mentor. My band teacher, Ray Wessinger, uh, was, he used to be the director of uh, radio at NBC, assistant music director at MGM back in the 50s and 60s in its heyday. He retired to Hawaii and to, You know, past his time, he became a band director at St. Louis High School. He took me under his wing and he told me he saw potential in me. And he said, if you want to be a musician, you have to do everything I say. I said, okay. This is, you know, in seventh grade when I first met him. So he had me learn how to arrange, how to write for a big band, play bass, play percussion, play piano. And he said, the reason you need to know all these things is because you never know where, you know, what you will be doing for a living. If someone needs an arranger, if someone needs a band leader, if someone, if you play guitar and there's an opening for a bass player, you better know how to play bass. And I moved to Los Angeles with uh, not being particularly good at anything, but I uh, was versatile. So I always worked in one way or another. I've orchestrated for films. I've, you know, had stuff in TV shows. I've sang on films or, you know, um, play different instruments. I started my career in the 90s in contemporary jazz. <clears throat> and 
Then I went to Hawaiian slap key guitar and played solo guitar and then ukulele and then started singing and then publishing um, instructional or music books. And now I design instruments <laughs> with uh, Pepe Romero. I still have a passion for learning. So right now I'm learning about uh, filming and video production and lighting and apertures and shutter speeds. And I love it. And it's all the same, you know, as we look at these paintings with Thomas Cole, you know, I, I, I see the lighting, I see the point of focus, I see the way he, well, I don't know if it's called framing when you paint, but the way his composition, you know, the subject is not in the center, it's, and, and the movement and the energy and the, I, I can identify those things in it, its components in the same way that we would look at music and say, oh, well, that's a C chord. And that's the melody and you sing in on the ninth or the raised 11th and that's why it has that sound. So I think what keeps it exciting for me is turning over new stones and learning new skills and doing different things. And it probably was 10 or 12 years ago when I actually kind of stopped working in music and focused entirely on original music and my own art. And I gave up our record company. We had a lot of different uh, artists, maybe nine different artists on our label, and we did um, acoustic music and Hawaiian music. It was more of a job. Back then I used to produce a lot of records and a lot of business and a lot of accounting and royalty payments and things like that. And about 10 or 12 years ago, I thought, you know, I really want to spend my time going forward focusing on my art and original music. and. That was one of the neatest decisions I made in my life because I'm not working for money uh, anymore, but I'm trying to make a living doing my art. So the art took priority over the business. But see, the other thing about manhood or adulthood, I should say, is responsibility. So we're talking about balancing responsibility, things you want to do with things you have to do. So that changed um, when my father passed away and... I have a daughter who graduated from college and I'm not paying NYU tuition anymore. <laughs> so I'm not as responsible for, for many things. And that allowed me so much more freedom to not think about money and, and focus on art. And I think it's, it's sort of a, an opportunity or right that I had to earn over the years. Thanks once again to Daniel Ho for joining us. You can find out more about him and all the artists we meet on this show at nga.gov slash podcast. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Arts Music Department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Arts Head of Music Programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, 
be well. <laughs>